listening to the CIPD podcast series. Back in October 2011, I met with Pensions Minister Steve Webb to discuss the pensions landscape at a time when changes to the state pension were imminent and the first phase of auto-enrolment was about to start. Almost three years later, with auto-enrolment in full swing and a recent announcement giving much more control over their pension pots to new retirees, I met with the Minister again. This time, I wanted to discuss the impact of the changes he's already made on employers and employees and hear what else he might have up his sleeve. We started with the changes on annuities announced in the budget. Now, at the time, some commentators labelled the new rules, allowing pensioners to spend part, or indeed all, of their pension pots, not on an annuity, but on whatever they please, as irresponsible. So how will they work, and what will they mean? So the basic idea is it's your money, and you can decide what you want to do with it. So if you have a pot of money that's been built up and invested, a, as you say, a defined contribution pot, then instead of... Technically, you didn't absolutely have to buy an annuity, but you had few practical choices in many cases. From April 2015, you'll be able to take all of it as cash if you want to, or buy an annuity with some of it and mix and match, or buy an annuity later in life. Or you know, You'll have a range of options. There's a tax implication of what you do, and we obviously need to think about that, but in principle, it's your choice, it's your money. So this is, am I right in thinking you can take 25% of it tax-free? You can, and then if, for example, you took the whole of the rest of it as well, it would be taxed as if you'd earned that money in that year. So to give you an example, if you've got a pension pot of £30,000, if you take it all in one go, we'll say, oh, you've earned £30,000 and we'll tax most of it at the standard income tax rate. If you took £3,000 a year for 10 years, you might not pay tax at all because you'd be potentially under the tax threshold. So that's one of the things people will have to think through. So there's an underlying encouragement for people not to be too profligate? There's certainly good tax reasons to spread the money. And also we think almost in terms of personalities, you know, the sort of person who puts money aside, is serious about pension savings, saves more than the legal minimum, doesn't suddenly on the whole become a spendthrift at 55, 65 or whatever. I asked Steve Webb if he felt that this increased flexibility around pensions would make people think differently about when they would retire. I think it will have a lot of knock-on effects and truth be told we probably don't know what all of them are. I think, first of all, it will probably make pension saving more attractive. And we know that automatic enrolment, that I'm sure we'll talk about later, has been very successful. But older workers have been slightly less willing to go in, perhaps because they thought they were tying their money up. Now they're not. So I hope it will lead to more pension saving. But it will, yes, it gives people new options, is the way I think of it. So, for example, you might ease down your hours, not necessarily stop working, but ease down your hours, take some of your pension as as cash or as as, as a guaranteed income. It, It will just give people, perhaps particularly in couples, more options to juggle what they do as a household. The government has been very clear that guidance must be on offer to help people making these very big decisions around pensions and retirement. But where will this guidance come from and who will foot the bill? We use the word guidance generally, although the, the Chancellor used the word advice just in a sort of colloquial way, but we mean specifically guidance, which in this context is not independent financial advice regulated about products, you know, very tailored to the individual. It's something broader than so that. So not in the context of financial services advice. Exactly, that's right. But what it does do is get a lot of people to the starting line. At the moment, people are making retirement choices, buying annuities or not, and all the rest of it, with practically no help, guidance or advice at all. So... I see this as a big step forward. It will familiarise people with the basics, the sorts of choices they have, and as someone put it to me the other day, people will start to know what the questions are they should be asking. 
And even if we can get people to that sort of stage, that will be a big step forward. Absolutely, I understand that. Where is this advice going to come from? Obviously, we're in the middle of a consultation at the moment, and this is all up for grabs. I don't envisage that pension scheme providers will be delivering the advice in general. So, you know, if you've got a pension with an insurance company, my sense is, we haven't made a final decision, but my sense is that's quite close. I want the person in the room not to be trying to flog you something, to be sufficiently independent that you can be confident that you're having an unbiased conversation. It may well be that pension schemes pay for guidance, but we're not expecting 40,000 pension schemes to actually organise it all individually. So pay in the form of a levy? For instance, it has been suggested, that would be an option, it? yeah. And one of the reasons why you might do it that way is lots of people have got multiple pensions. So you're in three pension schemes. You really want three providers to have to set up three lots of advice. It would be a nonsense. What you want is one conversation where you can bring all of your pension issues into the room you won't get as i say tailored financial advice but you'll start to see how it all fits together you'll realize that you might need to prepare for decades you'll realize there are tax consequences of what you're doing and so on and you'll also know where to go for more so you know everyone says to me this isn't a one-off event you know you, you need help before this you need help after it so there'll need to be websites and webcasts and phone lines and all of that kind of stuff and an infrastructure and that may be where part of the 20 million pounds the government set aside ends up being spent I asked the Minister what the changes mean for people with defined contribution pension schemes. So this came up, I think, last year was the first time I started reading about it. Mm -hmm. And the idea being, in simple terms, to give people involved in defined contribution schemes a bit more certainty about how much money they would actually have, just as people in final salary schemes have. Absolutely. So... We know that over the years, final salary, index-linked, gold-plated schemes have been on the way out. But the employers who provided them are still there. And many of them still want to do more than the bare legal minimum, your little DC pot in your little corner and me in mine kind of thing. And so what we uh, hope to be able to enable employers to do is to sponsor different sorts of risk-sharing schemes, not take back all the risks that they've just got rid of. You know, I don't think we'll turn that clock back. But either to have big pooled schemes like they have in the Netherlands, for example, collective DC schemes, where on average the volatility of the outcomes is much lower than if you've just got your little pot. Yes. So things can be smoothed, and that is appreciated. Or we, we have a thing we call a pension income builder, whereby bits of your pension are becoming more certain every year. So, you know, a bit's still going to go up or down with the market, but a bit's locked in, so that as you get near a pension age, you know more what you're going to get. Now, post-budget, that's more complicated, more, more you know, less clear-cut, because clearly you can take the whole lot as cash. Indeed. But even if all that's guaranteed to you is the cash pot that you're going to get, that would be better than not knowing what the pot was going to be. So we have to think through exactly what the budget does for those models, but people still want certainty, they want reduced volatility, and that's what these models will give. So that, that is a model you, you definitely want to take forward Absolutely. still? Absolutely. Any thoughts about when there might be more specific thoughts about how, how it would actually exist in reality? Yes, I mean, one date uh, where it would be good to have everything sorted by is 2016 because big company schemes will have to end contracting out at that point and at that point, therefore, they'll be, and indeed in the run-up, obviously, to that point, they'll be rethinking what they do. So having these new models in place by 2016 would be good. Uh, we have something else happening in May 2015, so it might be good to have it done by then as well. Steve Webb is also ushering in major reforms to the state pension. In April 2016, we'll have a new single-tier flat rate, and by 2028, we'll see the state pension age rise from 66 to 67. I asked him how he thought the changes might affect people's behaviour. 
Part of the state pension reforms is to give people much greater certainty and predictability. You know, until these reforms come in, you get a basic pension, you get a SERPs pension of anything between naught and 100 quid. Sometimes the company scheme's replacing part of that. Nobody knew what state pension they were going to get. The goal of the new scheme, it's, it doesn't happen on day one, but essentially we get to a situation where you, if you do 35 years of contributions or credits, basically if you spend your life in this country, you're going to get 7,500 quid, if, basically if you get out of bed. You know, there's, there's enough ways of getting credits and contributions in that virtually anybody who spends their life in this country will get 7,500 quid. Now, that's the bare minimum we think people need to live on. That's the means test level at the moment. And what we're saying to people then is automatic enrolment in the workplace, you save on top of that, and because we're clearish of the means test, when you save a bit, you're a bit better off than your neighbour who didn't save. And we haven't been able to say that before. So we think that this will underpin automatic enrolment. It has avoided the negative newspaper stories that say, don't bother saving for a small pension, it's not worth it. It is worth it, and the budget reinforces that message. So for us, the, the state pension reform... Benefits particular groups, so lower paid workers on average because it's not earnings related, many women whose caring in the past hasn't been properly valued, and the self-employed, Indeed. interestingly. Um, obviously there are losers, you know, the higher earners on average will get less than they would have done because the whole thing costs about the same. But the idea is simplification, rewarding saving, enabling people to plan. Back in October 2011, the auto-enrolment process was just beginning – And when I met Steve Webb then, he talked at length about how an enormous publicity drive would help to raise people's awareness of the personal responsibility we each now have to plan our retirement finances. So, nearly three years later, does he feel that campaign has done its job? I think it's gone stunningly well, actually. We've auto-enrolled in 18 months 3.3 million people. Nine out of ten have stayed in, which is far better than anybody really thought would happen. And, you know, when I go to conferences and I say, you know, stick a hand in the air if you've seen the I'm in adverts, the Theo Pafitas, the Karen Brady, the posters and so on, overwhelmingly people have seen them. And then when we do survey work and we look at the people who have and who haven't seen them, the people who've seen the adverts are much more likely to stay in, much more likely to engage with pension saving. So I think, you know, rare thing, highly successful government policy and highly successful government advertising campaign. But what do pensions experts outside the Westminster bubble think? Ben Marks is HR Compensation and Benefits Director at L'Oreal. I asked him if he'd seen a change in the way employees there think about pensions since auto-enrolment came along. Yes, definitely. We had a huge uh, communication exercise to make sure people understood what we were trying to do. So just by virtue of explaining to them what they needed to do if they wished to opt out and really just the the, the very basics of what, of what a pension is meant that the awareness was absolutely heightened um, and that, that's brilliant. But I don't think it's got to the heart of really capturing people's imagination because the very nature of it, it's complex, it's a long way away and you have to give people a certain amount of information which they don't particularly want to read. So I think people understand because it's a fairly simple message, you know, that you put in a the employer puts in 1%, you save some uh, tax and, you know, that's for your retirement, which is is a nice simple message. But really underneath everything, um, how are the investments working, what are they going to have when they retire, etc, etc, I think the level of engagement is is nowhere near what it needs to be to really fulfil, I think, what all employers want to do, which is to have people really understanding the the value of that pension and really making additional um, investments into, into their schemes. Even though L'Oreal's drive to raise awareness about the importance of retirement planning has worked well, 
Ben Marks acknowledges there is still plenty of apathy about pensions from some members of staff, particularly those who perhaps feel retirement is a long way off. The measurement of how well you've done on your campaign is really how many people have opted out. Indeed. And how's that been at L'Oreal? We did very well. Our opt-out rate overall was less than 5%. um, So that's encouraging. It it is. And when we think two years ago when we were planning it, we were anticipating 20%, then 10%. Now, I'm sure we did a good job in the communication, but at the same time, is it really a case of people were even apathetic enough to, to, to opt out or, or not, which is... <laughs> it just a, which couldn't it, be bothered to opt it, out. It is a, maybe a worry on that side. But I, I think you can always gauge by the level of queries that you get through. And from an right. HR department, if we're getting a huge number of questions, what's this on my pay slip? I didn't know anything about it. Then we'd worry about it. But the fact is, we didn't really get any of that. It was quite a painless exercise. Um, well, but does that play into the apathy theory? Well, yes. I think the balance for us is taking a view of... Are people making an active choice to come in or out of a pension scheme? And before auto-enrolment came along, we had always taken the view that individuals knew what they were getting, we'd given them the information. If they didn't sign up to it, it's because they had made an investment choice and they were going to invest in something else. And realistically, what really was happening is people weren't equipped with the knowledge, they didn't really have the education, you know, the confidence to make a, a decision... And it was complicated and not that interesting for them. And I think what happened was that they just didn't engage with it and they didn't sign up. And what we've actually done is taken the view that let's just accept that. We'll do as as much as we possibly can and we continue to do lots of engagement work. But the role of the employer really has to be, as the government has set out, is you've got to be more paternalistic, you've got to be more benevolent, you've got to take a view of what is the... What is the best policy for the individual, irrespective of whether they really want to engage with you? And what we've actually done as a result of auto-enrolment is taken a really good look at our pension strategy and think, well, actually, we're going to put our contribution levels at a higher rate. So as they advance over the four or five years... Employers' contributions. Yes, yeah, Mm. for for both. So rather than just um, saying to people, right, you're in the scheme, we've done our job and and rub our hands of it, we really wanted to get um, to the point where you know, pe- people are, are saving at, at the full rates that we can offer. As Ben explained, L'Oreal is going beyond its auto-enrolment obligations and pushing hard on pensions, even if some younger employees are more focused on other types of reward. Part of the, the impact of auto-enrolment for us, and I'm sure a lot of other organisations, it's made us open our eyes and look at things afresh. Um, rather than just thinking, right, this is an obligation, it'll cost us money, let's minimise it and move on. It it was an opportunity to really look at what is it we're trying to achieve as an employer, what is our whole reward strategy, and that's when we opened it out to all the other different elements of reward because, of course, you can't just say, right, we've done pensions, let's move on to something else. Indeed. I I suppose, looking specifically at pensions, I'm interested that you are going further than you have to in the Mm -hmm. sense that you're taking, as as you described it, a slightly... Really, a paternalistic mm. approach to it. Mm-hmm. And is the thought in your mind then that you're doing that because it will play into the the contract between you and the employees, the sense that it, this isn't just about money, this mm-hmm. is about us being a good employer yes. who has a long-term regard for what happens to you, really, yes. whether you're with us or not? Yes, I, I think so. It, it does come back to the, the real philosophy behind the, the whole group of L'Oreal. Um, we, in the UK, we have about 4,000 employees and we're I think the fifth largest entity within the group but worldwide we have something like 75,000 people and we have a a sustainability agenda 
which encompasses employees in the sense that every employee that the group believes should have a minimum level of protection and care from financial events. And so this isn't just the UK thinking, oh, let's let's do what we can and reflect the, the market. This is really a much bigger deal for, for, for L'Oreal as an employer. And it's genuine as well. I mean, I, I think the history of the philanthropy that we've done and the the impact in, in local communities is strong. And, you know, the the impact, I suppose, on the new sustainability agenda won't have a dramatic effect on the UK in the sense of, um, you know, everyone has to have, say, life assurance or maternity pay because a lot of it is within the legislation and a lot of it is something you do as good practice. But what it means is in different countries where the, the government doesn't impose any particular statutory minimums, the employer has to step in, whether they like it or not, and, and that will cause some discomfort from a budgetary point of view. But it's the right thing to do, and the group recognise this. So this is all, all, all of our approach is just consistent, I think, from, from a, a global basis. Food for thought there about the impact of these shifts in British pension practice for organisations with a global workforce. And here's how Pensions Minister Steve Webb sees auto-enrolment evolving in future. Clearly we've got to keep our eye on the ball. We've auto-enrolled roughly a third of all the people who have to be enrolled. We are working our way down the size scale. So from next May, June, we start the under-50s employees. So um, that's a completely different ballgame. You know, the firms have employed one person and so on. Never been anywhere near any of this. Now, More problematic? Yes, more problematic. Um, but more potential as well, I think. Because, you know, clearly they haven't got the HR departments, the pensions departments and all the rest of it. They haven't got the comms budgets. But they're generally dealing with people who've never had the chance to have a pension before. And if you've got one employee who earns, you know, who's on a regular job and, a, and wage and so on is all within the criteria, it's much simpler, actually, than if you're a big firm that's got multiple payrolls and casual workers and people who are, you know, could be foreign workers or not. You know, actually, for many, many smaller firms, this is relatively simple. We've set up NEST, the National Employment Savings Trust, as the provider who has to take your business. So there will be someone there for you. I would say to any small firm in the land, do not pay for advice unless you really, really want to. You you can do this thing without paying out your hard-earned cash. There's a provider there. There are others, obviously, and you should have a look around. But there is a provider that has to take your business that's not for profit and that's been designed with you in mind. So the language has been simplified. The processes have been simplified. And, you know, the standard letters on the regulator's website, you know, there, there are things out there to help people through this. And um, actually, employees appreciate it. So it's a positive thing for an employer. With responsibility for thinking about pension planning shared between government, employees and employers, these changes to pensions present a raft of challenges for bosses. One major change with a plethora of practical implications is the elongation of our working lives into our late 60s and perhaps beyond. For employers... Enabling that shift involves a multitude of issues, from health and insurance to adjusting job roles and phasing retirement. Ben Marks gave me some insights into L'Oreal's thinking on the challenges ahead. Some of the things that we are looking at are are just that. It's making allowances uh, for people who want to have a phased retirement, and we do this already. And as part of our scheme rules, we allow people to to wind down their their hours but still benefit from from accrual into the pension scheme. But there are a lot of other areas that we need to address. We've got a fairly disparate population. We have our sort of head office uh, people, we've got distribution centre people, and we've got a large uh, beauty advisor uh, population. These are the people behind the stalls at um, Selfridges and John Mm. Lewis, you know, through 
brands like Longcomb and YSL. And they're a completely different profile as well. It's a very transient business. But then people who stay for, for longer, I mean, it's a, they're not sitting at a desk where you can manage their posture. Um, they're, you know, they're doing a very different role, just as the people in the DCs are. So I think the role of the occupational health professional is, is going to be uh, stronger. And it's also about workplace design. And um, career management and progression, isn't it? These are management issues, aren't yes, they? Yes, um, they are. And you're right, because you get to the point where, particularly I think you see this in the professional services sector, where you know you work for a certain number of years, you get promoted, you become an associate or a partner, and then after a number of years you tail off, and, 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 that's, and that's that. And, and those sort of points are fairly well defined, the, the number of years you would expect to last in each of those. So I think there has got to be some pretty radical thinking, because... We, we're really not seeing that many people over 60 remaining with us at the moment. And that's, you know, that's their choice. And, you know, that's the, you know, that's the, the current environment. So if we're putting another nearly 10 years on that, um, that, that there's going to be some, some pretty big differences. Since he's been in post, Steve Webb has led a raft of big changes on pensions. And he's very open about the fact that he doesn't think the job's finished yet. So what else does he have in mind? It is funny because wherever you go and you talk to employers and people involved in the industry and say, you know, leave us alone, just stop <laughs> reforming. And then you talk to anyone in, in media and so on and they say, and what's next? You know, what's the next reform? And, you know, I think we've done a lot of the fundamentals. You know, I think state pension reform was essential. Mass membership of workplace pensions thought enrolment was important. I think regulating the quality of those schemes, charge caps, governance and all the rest of it. I think defined ambition and risk sharing is an important legal framework to put in place. So there's still you know, more to do there. Clearly, I don't think, speaking purely personally here, not for the government, but I don't think the current tax relief regime will, will hold. It's so skewed towards high earners, I think that something's going to have to give there. But if you did simplify it, if you did, for example, give everyone the same rate of tax relief, you wouldn't need lifetime limits. And if you got rid of lifetime limits, that would simplify things, and it might get the top employers, the bosses, back in the pension scheme because people tell me the bosses are all off because they've all used up their limits and they're therefore less interested in the pension scheme. If they could start getting annual tax relief again, that might make employers more interested in the works pension scheme. Politically difficult. Yes, although if, for example, you had a standard rate of relief that was lower than the higher rate but higher than the standard rate, most people would gain because most people pay tax at the standard rate. Not necessarily politically difficult. Do you see a realistic chance of that happening? It's a, it's a purely personal view, but it's one that I, I will be promoting. That's it for this month. If your organisation is about to dive into auto-enrolment, you'll find three earlier podcasts full of expert advice and shared experience from people who've already been through it on the CIPD site. Next time, we'll be focusing on SMEs, and as usual, the podcast will be up on the site on the first Tuesday of the month. Don't miss it. You've been listening to the CIPD podcast series.